0: and Rick came out in the same year. Like, imagine, really? IMAGINE! imagine what a year! Be a fan, the Bindersk friends. Where well, we talk about movies all day. It's Gracie named J. Spoilers ahead. Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Amy. Welcome to our living room floor. So this week, we are looking at Heath Ledger's filmography. What we did for this is we watched 10 Things I Hate About You, which ooh. is a two- th- no, 1999? Yes. We looked- we've looked up the date so many times. We really have. Wait, we got- we got to fact check ourselves. Yep. A 1999 teen flick. Um, we also watched A Knight's Tale, which is- 2001 American Medieval Adventure Comedy. Hoo-hoo-hoo. It's got rock music. It's great and we watched Brokeback Mountain which came out in 2005 and is as it was dubbed at the time the gay cowboy movie the, the gay cowboy, the cowboy movie. movie the gay cowboy movie all right where do we want to start well okay elephant in the room we didn't watch the joker or didn't watch a dark knight <laughs> where he is the joker we did not have you okay have you seen the dark knight trilogy yes Okay. I've I watched it so long ago, though, that, like, I don't remember that much of it. Because I was, like, a pre-teen. Okay. I have not seen them with a modern adult memory. I have never seen them. I feel like I've probably seen glimpses of them, but I don't know them well enough to even know that. that's what I was watching at the time. And I was about to say that I'm ready to, like, feed on the, like, anger of, like, any dude bros, but only our friends watch this, and we're not friends with anyone who would be that upset about not watching the Dark Knight films. Yeah, you're you're totally right. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm relieved or well. Now one of our friends is gonna text us and be like, "Excuse me, I love the Dark Knight. <laughs> Come at me. I've never watched them. It feels like we we're talking about this. It feels like the same energy of me saying I've never seen a Quentin Tarantino film." That was iconic, honestly. Like, the fact that I actually went through his filmography and you hadn't seen a single one was nope. iconic. Nope. nope. You are the, like, the exact opposite of a straight white boy. I mean, I'm still white. You are. But other but than that, you're you are fucking anti-Quentin Teneritino vibes give off the exact opposite energy from a straight white boy. It's called being a lesbian. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but anyway, would you like to talk about why we didn't watch The Dark Knight? (laughs) Strap in, folks. We're getting into it early. Here is an Amy thesis dissertation. If you know me in real life, you understand how many of those (laughs) there are. Hold on, I gotta grab popcorn. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. Hello, friends. This is the part where Amy from Editing in the Future comes in to just issue a quick trigger warning, letting you know that we do discuss... Um, suicide, just a little bit, no details, nothing uh, crazy, but it is mentioned um, in the rest of the episode as Heath Ledger is somebody who took his own life. Um, now back to my dissertation. I feel very strongly that it is somewhat disrespectful that so many people remember Heath Ledger solely for his role as the Joker when it is able to be heavily implied, you know, contextualized that um, his role as the Joker and the way that he, especially with the way that he method acts, is what led to his mental decline, which eventually ended with him taking his life. I think that is kind of disrespectful to him. When there's so many other movies that he had amazing performances in, why do we solely tend to remember him for a role that was very violent and also fucked him up? Um, Especially when there's a movie like Brokeback Mountain out there that was groundbreaking and that he spoke incredibly highly of and understood the cultural impact it was going to have. Like, he was very aware um, during the filming, and that's part of why he wanted to be a part of the project is my understanding is because he understood how groundbreaking that was going to be and the doors it was going to open in this, like in cinema. Um So in my opinion, we need to spend some time remembering Heath Ledger for things that aren't the Joker, because there's a lot more to remember him for. And I think that's, of the trap of like any superhero movie any superhero franchise ever like that's always what you're gonna get caught in and I think especially for the Batman films that's just really kind of upset like how many Batmans have there been how many Jokers have there been and like you're gonna take someone who has a fucking incredible filmography and put like and like having never seen it I understand that it was He's super talented, obviously, he was good in the role, iconic, whatever, but, like, I feel like, and you can do this with literally any superhero actor at any point in time, and, like, you know, Chris Evans, really great Captain America, but, like, he's done Snowpiercer, he's done Knives Out, he's done tons of things that you have seen and have shown me, and they're (laughs) fucking good. Before we go, um... He was just in a new show called Saving Jacob, Defending Jacob, Defending Jacob, where he's an attorney. He was in Puncture, an indie film that is a biopic about an attorney who was a heroin addict. Uh, or no, a cocaine addict? It was a drug. Um, he's been in a bunch of teen flicks, actually. He was um, the original Torch in the early 2000s, Fantastic Four. Yeah. Like, how many things has Chris Evans done? And we're only ever going to know him primarily as Captain America. Like, that's going to be the first and foremost association in people's minds when he has a rich filmography. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, like, yeah, that's just how it is with any superhero film. And on the one side, like, that's probably a really good benefit because, like, I mean, that's how it is whenever you have that huge blockbuster Mm -hmm. that you're in. They also cast them that way on purpose. They don't want people that have, um like, really obvious branding already because they want them to be branded entirely as that superhero. Um, Which is part of the reason that Marvel has probably been a little bit more successful than DC. DC tried to make somebody who already had a number of films tied directly to his appearance Superman. Mm -hmm. But, like, we all know something else that Ben Affleck's in. Um, Versus, you know, you cast I don't know any I was going to say, names. there's a lot of really big names in, especially in the first run of like three MCU. Brie Larson. Brie Larson. But she's, she's done a crap ton. She has. But, but what do people know? People don't know her for any other large franchise. That's true. And that's another good example of, like, how much has mm-hmm. she done? How, how many amazing projects mm-hmm. has she worked on? And she's always going to be, yeah. Because I feel like before she was Captain Marvel... The only thing I knew her for was The Room, because she just won um, Golden Globe, I think, and maybe an Academy Award for The Room, and that was how she entered like my scope, mm-hmm. but I didn't know anything else she'd been in. I just recognized her face, kind of, where I was like, I know she's famous, and then I saw her in The Room, and then she was cast as Captain Marvel, so it was kind of like she was up and coming, she had her big breakout to gain respect, and then immediately became the face of a franchise. Yeah. And which, that's what they usually try to do. Which, like, I mean, I don't know, like, good for actors who want that and who get that because, like, suddenly you're a household name and, like, you have, you know... They know it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah. But also, and I think especially for a role like the Joker, how many Jokers have there been? How many have there been since then? And even if They've Heath already Ledger, cast two other people yeah. as the Joker since Heath Ledger's past. And even Heath Led- if Heath Ledger was, like, the best Joker of all time, like, he's he did so many other incredible things, and so he's just, like, the best of a run of multiple characters. Like, it's so... Especially, I think especially with the Joker, where, like... You can put a personal spin on it, but that is a very specific character and a very specific storyline mm-hmm. that it's not, it's not like doing the Shakespeare play or something like that, that you can really reform it with every single one. I mean, you can do it really fucking awfully and be a fucking Although, creep with it. Cough, I think... Cough, Jared Leto, but... <laughs> I think there is, though, I'm pretty sure... Which, granted, I was not really aware of comics and superheroes when A Dark Knight came out and when I watched A Dark Knight, um, as I am now. And even now, I know movies much better than I know comics. Like, I'm not some mm-hmm. comic connoisseur. I just kind of understand the context of the comics, and I'll read up about the history of the character, and then I'll watch when a movie about them does come out. Um, so, obviously, if somebody else is a comic connoisseur... Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's my disclaimer, but I'm pretty sure that his performance, Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker was so iconic, he created the cinematic Joker that we then saw reprised by Jared Leto. Like, I'm pretty sure he kind of created that. Because, of course, the Joker's always been, like, really fucked up and menacing and had, like, the face paint and all of that. Like, the image was there. But I'm pretty sure the extent of, like, the creepiness and a lot of, like, the mannerism sort of stuff was invented. Cat interruption. Um, so I'm pretty sure that was invented by Heath Ledger. And then Jared Leto... Ruined it? Yeah, basically. But he, like, kind of continued that. Now, I haven't seen the new Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. I don't know if that's how... Because, too, with that being an origin story movie and supposed to be treated as, like, a biopic of a man whose life is falling apart and who's mentally declining, I don't know if you even see him, like, as a villain in that movie, like, getting to the point of, like, being the actual Joker or if you just watch his demise. But um, I'm pretty sure that... Heath Ledger created the Joker as Jared Leto then continued it. Okay. Okay. I guess I should... Yeah. That makes sense. I think it'd be the same as, like, okay, so Captain America is now no more in the MCU. He passed on his mantle to Sam. It, I think it'd kind of be the same as now if we see Sam as Captain America, there's certain embodiments he's going to have because mm-hmm. he's going to be following in Steve's footsteps, sort of thing. I think it's going to be similar where it's like how Chris Evans played Captain America is going to have to be in the next rendition of Captain America so that like our association continues and so that we don't feel like the character is out of character when we see Sam playing yeah. him. I just think it's, I think it's sad that even then, with how, like, like, yeah, like, even if he is the original, the best, the most iconic, whatever, he's always going to be, his, what the wider, wider society views as his best role is always going to be put alongside so many other people's roles. Yes. Like, when everyone hated how much Jared, like, Leto or Leto? Leto, I believe how much Jared, like, everyone who didn't like his take on the Joker and just him in general on set, uh, (laughs) it was put next to... His version of method acting that was fucking horrific. Yes. Uh, It was put next to Heath Ledger. Yes. And it's like, that. that's a damper on a... Like, it shouldn't change how you view him, but it's sad that that's how he's being remembered. Yes. When he was Patrick and he was William... And he was Ennis. 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 Right? God. Ennis. Ennis. Listen, listen. If you get to be a heartfelt peasant boy who changes his stars to the set of like We Will Rock You and other fucking legendary soundtrack pieces, why in the world, why in the world would you take that actor and remember him as the Joker? Yeah. Come on. And here's the thing: is like. I had seen all of these movies before we decided to do this podcast episode. So they're all good movies. Granted, I am a re-watcher, and I know that's controversial, but I am an extreme re-watcher. But I'd seen a Night's Tale, this is my third or fourth time seeing it. I've seen Brokeback Mountain twice, and I've seen Ten Things I Hate About You twice. Like, they're good movies. They're so good. Well, and they are. They are iconic, like Ten Things yes. I Hate About You is it enough like Like I would argue Ten Things that I Hate About You was probably the beginning of the format that then followed through the rest of the teen flicks of the early 2000s. Yeah. Like, 10 Things I Hate About You led to Mean Girls and led to She's the Man. She's the Man, especially. Yeah, like, there's so many things like that that it led to. And it's still, it's quoted all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like her, her I Don't Hate You speech is all over the internet. So that's super iconic. The entire idea of a medieval movie set to a modern soundtrack, like, that, like, a, a period piece set to a soundtrack that doesn't fit is an idea that reigned throughout the rest of the 2000s and still today is iconic. Right. And if you look at like something like Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. hugely fucking successful, super well-loved, I think that you can, if you go back through the groundwork of how we got to the point that we could have a superhero movie with like music like that in the background, by not only that the original Iron Man movie did that in the MCU, but if you go back even further... Things like A Knight's Tale laid the groundwork for that to be palatable by society. Or you could argue that um, how successful the Great Gatsby remake's soundtrack was, yeah, comes back to this. And, like, it's it, it's a thing. Like, I, I hold no one was ready for A Knight's Tale in 2001, and it's, it's very upsetting. I just had a thought about period pieces. Yes, go. Here's my thought. So, if you look at... Okay, so you know how there's so many people where when they read Shakespeare early in high school, they had no understanding that it's supposed to be funny? Mm -hmm. What you do, I I think makes a good period piece that is going to be well loved by many different kinds of people, is recontextualizing it by putting something really modern with it so then they can use that modern lens to show us how we're supposed to feel and to give us a way to connect to it as the people at that time would. So, for example, in A Knight's Tale, they put, we will rock you in there for us to understand that the knights who are jousting are their professional athletes. They are rooting for and they are groupies for. Yeah, they're showing us this is sports culture. Knight groupies. Yeah, and a great Gatsby. They play um, like R&B music and rap music when they go into the speakeasies for us to understand that's the cool place where the cool people hang out and the rebels of society. Mm -hmm. Which granted, there's a weird racial lens to that, but that is how they contextualize it for us, for us to understand that that's like the cool place where, you know, like the the rebels of society are getting their alcohol at Mm -hmm. that time. Here's another thing um Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet oh yeah yeah like you don't understand how Romeo and Juliet is supposed to be funny and over the top until you see Baz Luhrmann's version of it like that's the only reason I understood that as a freshman in high school reading Romeo and Juliet yep they gave it that modern setting they gave it the like all the weird fashion and stuff of the early 2000s, and then we can understand the larger context of everything happening because they've given us a lens to view it through that we understand. Yeah. And I think part of that is just kind of like the whole typical, like, trying to relate to the kids kind of thing. Um, Right. But, like, that's how literature evolves. That's how stories keep living, is you find ways to relate it to the next generation. And, like, well, even that's also how, you get, yeah, that's how you. you get... 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, that's how you get 10 Things I Hate About You. That's how you get She's the Man. That's how you get the fucking Lion King and the Lion King too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. I like period pieces. I like biopics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I really, I like the trend of, um, and I don't, like, it's probably always been a trend, but I'm thinking about it because of Little Women and because we were talking about Pride and Prejudice, but the whole, like remaking an iconic period piece with everyone's favorite actress Mm -hmm. or actor or whatever. Like, how many people like Pride and Prejudice because of the version with Keira Knightley in it and then, like, went and read it and, like, that kind of thing. And same thing with Little Women. Like, half the ladies in my office started reading Little Women after the film came out last Christmas because the film was amazing. I also imagine... So, like, in Twilight, she mentions Wuthering Heights a lot. So many people read Wuthering Heights because of Twilight. Yes, exactly. That's where I was going to go with that, is that once you have a modern piece that is kind of based on or references something, it repopularizes the thing it's referencing. Like, Twilight Mm -hmm. was huge. I'm sure that they saw increases in Wuthering Heights being, like, read and being bought and stuff like that. Like, I'd love to look at the Goodreads trend and see how many people, like, that they were reading Wuthering Heights when Twilight was really big. Yeah, I feel like because I kind of feel like there's been a Shakespeare revival, a which bit. is weird because I feel like Shakespeare, like it's, it always has revivals. Yeah, it always has it's revivals. Shakespeare and like I don't know if this is too far stretching, and maybe it's just like a thing for our generation. But between like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, Ten Things I Hate About You, She's the Man, Lion King, Lion King, like all of these things, and then. Getting to like, once we hit college age and we could choose to interact with like whatever literature we wanted, and I think that's when, and maybe this is just like us and our friend group and like the fact that we were surrounded by like kids who liked books our whole lives. Yeah, yeah, but I think like without those media pieces throughout our childhoods, we would not be interested in Shakespeare. Or Shakespeare jokes, or like anything like that, it would still be that dumb thing we read freshman year of high school that we were forced to read. Um, even though, like, I definitely loved all the things I read in high school because I was a giant nerd. <laughs> but oh, you know what I just thought of? Another example, Easy A. So oh, yeah, 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 that's another one. Easy A was oh, huge. Was so good. Are we? That gone? was Emma Stone's breakout. Was it really? Yeah, that was her really big her. breakout role. Are we gonna do a, uh, period, or a classic book turned modern episode? We should. Because we've already watched this. Let us know if you want it. Tweet us. Alright, what else? Should we actually though? talk about these films? Yeah, let's actually talk about these films. Do you want to just go in order that we watch them? Sure. In order of release dates? As you were the one who had not seen Ten Things I Hate About You in a very uh-huh. long okay, time. Okay, in a long time. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about rewatching it as a, uh, air quotes, adult? Okay, so... I think the same way I felt... I don't remember when I watched this. I think I was still in college. So, in in theory, it hasn't been that long. You were already a, air quotes, adult. Yeah, it was definitely high school or college. Um, So, at the point where... I I think it was was past the point where I was, like, just kind of sick of, like, oh, they fall in love because they fall in love stories. Um, Because even though I didn't know a lot of things in high school, I was still at that point. Um... So, and I remember watching it with my mom, and I, I do have a soft spot for chick flicks that I watch with my mother. Okay. Um, and I think I just have a soft spot for chick flicks, and my mother's the one I watch them with the most, mm-hmm. but I'm always going to be a little fonder of them, because, like, I don't know, it's just a thing we do together. Um, I feel a lot the same way, and I think I was expecting to, like, still like it, and be kind of like, oh, well, it's, like, aged a little bit, or something like that. No, I really, really like it still. Mm -hmm. I think I like it more than I did the first time I watched it. Nice. (laughs) It's interesting because um, I really love it. But I really love it in that way where, like, I know it has problems because, Mm -hmm. like, we've moved past the way it treats its female characters. Yes. But I also can recognize, much like She's the Man, that this movie is one of the, like, weird groundworks for how many feminists are in our generation. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, there's such a weird thing of having, like, teen movies... That were feminist in that kind of like Joss Whedon-y, uh, that's how I'm always gonna refer to it. Not even know yes. if he's the origin of that shit. But like that Joss Whedon-y way where it's like, I'm a badass girl, but like I'm still soft for this one dude and like gonna totally fall apart for him. Like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it definitely puts Kat in a bad light where it's like she's not supposed to be as much of a feminist as she is, but she doesn't have to completely abandon her feminist views to get the god. It's more like they meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah, because I don't... Because Pat never contradicts her feminist views. Right. He treats her like shit sometimes and mm-hmm. does a really horrible thing. That is the premise of the movie. But he never contradicts that. And I think I just remember, like, because it's also another, like, heavily gifted scene, wherever he, like, walks into the classroom and he's like, what's going What I miss? And she's like, you know, patriarchal bullshit. He's like, cool, bye, and leaves. And he leaves because he's not interested in the class. But also, I like to think that he leaves because he's not interested in patriarchal bullshit. Yep. (laughs) Um, But I agree with that. I think it's one of those weird things where, like, we are better than this movie now, but part of the reason we are better than this movie now is is because of this movie. Exactly. It's the same way that, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a feminist work Mm -hmm. when it came out, and it wouldn't be now, but it was then. You know, I kind of feel that way about Rent. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it was really groundbreaking when it came out, yeah. but it's not quite as much anymore. Yeah. But and you then, can still recognize the cultural impact oh, that these yeah. things had. You have to. And I think, not to jump ahead, but I feel that way a little bit about Brokeback Mountain, too. Yeah. Well, I think it's that thing where it's like, okay, can we stop seeing gay people die? Can mm-hmm. we just have them on film as people who happen to be gay? Like, can we get to that point? Yeah. Well, you have to recognize that in the first place for gay people to get on TV, it was going to have to be in a dramatic storytelling yeah. way. Well, and it's, and it's the same thing, because, okay, I will bring up Love, Simon any chance we get, because we both love it. But it's the same thing with love simon and how many people like when it came out were like it's a middle class white boy like whatever and i i get that i definitely get that but the fact is we have a little middle class white boy who doesn't die he gets a happy ending mm-hmm. and that in itself is groundbreaking and that is laying the groundwork so that at some point in the future two people are going to be doing a podcast about how love simon's great and all but we're better than that now right and it's going to be so good it's like baby steps And sometimes we wish it was leaps and bounds, but of course it's going to be baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But so, 10 things I hate about you. Yes. Um. I want every piece of clothing Kat wears. Good. So good. I want all of them. Every single one. Especially the blue camouflage tank top. Yeah. (laughs) I think I just am in love with Julia Stiles now. (laughs) That's fair. Um. Definitely would have had a crush on her if I was, like, <laughs> older than three when this movie came out. So I remember um, in college at one point in my sorority, we were introducing ourselves by saying what character from popular media we are. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm Cat from 10 Things I Hate About You. And I hadn't seen the movie in a while at that point. And I also hadn't thought that when I watched the movie, I just, like, retroactively been like, "Oh, uh, who am I for this activity? Uh, I'm Cat from 10 Things I Hate About You. It was just, like, my funny way to, like, slyly be like, I'm a fucking feminist, guys. <laughs> but re-watching it, I was like, oh my god, I'm Cat from 10 Things I Hate About You. I was like, holy shit, I was so did accurate when I said that. Did you bring that up, or did I turn to you and be like, she's you? I don't remember. I think I turned to you and was like... <laughs> Which, okay, okay, okay. That actually brings me to the one point I wrote down about this, which was Amy's cat. <laughs> no, it was, um, and I hope this isn't like saying too much about you on the internet, but also like only our friends watch this. So the one thing I wrote, and I'm just going to say because it's like a broad topic, so I'm just going to read what I wrote, and I put male versus female scary, the aggressive and dangerous type versus being unavailable and uncaring. And so I was thinking about how, when we we're introduced, and like their initial conversations, Cat and Pat's, oh, Cat and Pat, oh, that's cute. Cat and Patrick's initial conversations with each other are them both kind of realizing, and the film showing us that they're both like the scary people in school and the ones that you avoid at all costs. And for Patrick, it's because everyone thinks that he's like killed a man and <laughs> like been to jail and done all this crazy shit, and he's aggressive and dangerous, and don't talk to him. And for Kat, it's literally just because she has her own views and doesn't do what people expect of her, and it's- literally that she'll speak up, stand up for herself. Yeah. And she doesn't and back stand down up to creepy for you guys. Yeah. And the fact that that is also all rooted in her not wanting to sleep with the popular dude. Like, I don't know, it just, I, it was like, chilling. For as much as we've moved past that, that core concept of like, this is what makes a man scary, it's aggression and anger. And this is what makes a woman scary, it's that she doesn't want to sleep with me. That was fucking chilling. And, Mm -hmm. like, that is a deep subject and a really important issue to go into for a 90s chick flick. Yeah. Yeah. Which, like, it's such a subtle thing, though, too, where it's like you could totally not have that realization from this movie, mm-hmm. but when you think about it like that, you're like, oh, hot damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's one of those things that I never would have picked up watching this with my mom in high school or whatever. Mm-hmm. But now, picking it up as a 20-something who's a uh, huge feminist, I'm just gonna like, huh. And then I find it interesting that, like, the way they reconcile that with each other is that, you know, you find out everything about Patrick was a lie, and you find out and so he's not scary because it was all false. And then you find out everything about Kat comes from this form of trauma. Yeah. So it's me! <laughs> oh, Amy. <laughs> I don't know, it's just such a, such an interesting look at, like, how we view men and women. hmm It feels like there's something, like, passive versus active about it. I guess both are kind of passive, though. Where both of them, like, did a simple act, and it got extremely misconstrued by the people around them. But Patrick's kind of, like, benefited him because people just stayed away from him, he could do what he wanted, just, like, smoke on school grounds and shit, Um, or, like, fuck around during class, and use the Bunsen burner to light his cigarettes. Yeah, (laughs) what the fuck? Um, Versus Kat did something... And it created this, like, view of her that then led to her being taunted and bullied. Like, we never see Patrick be bullied, even though they both have um, perceptions now that make them intimidating to the people. They're mm-hmm. both viewed as aggressive. Whereas that's, like, protective for Patrick, it brings more bad things to Kat because yeah. now she gets bullied and teased and told she's ridiculous and, like, that kind of stuff. I would agree with the passive versus active, though, because all that Patrick did, as far as we know, is he showed up at school and didn't make an effort to connect with anyone. Mm -hmm. And so everyone was just like, that's a loner kid, he's aggressive, stay away from him, leave him alone. And Katz has spent, what, was she a freshman when, like, the thing happened to her? Yeah, because they're only sophomores now. So she spent, like, three years, right? She's a senior in the film. Is she? Yeah, cause she's going to college afterwards, and that's like a whole. Oh her dad. right, yeah. Anyway, she spent most of her high school career carefully crafting this persona of like, "Don't fuck with me," and it's people don't. I mean, people don't really fuck with her as much as they could have, but it ends up with yeah, her her sister doesn't like her, her dad doesn't understand her. She has a singular friend in the entire high school, and everyone else thinks she's a bitch, like. And she had to work to get that, and in a way Patrick has it better, because he can do his own thing, and just... He doesn't have to spend energy creating a facade to protect himself, whereas Kat, because she's a woman, does. Yes. Mic drop. Patriarchy! Woohoo! And that's why Kat's a feminist. Night's tale, y'all. Let's talk about a night's tale. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about your realization during this movie. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. There's, at one point, I had a lot of realizations about this movie. I was tweeting a lot during this movie because I was having a grand old time. <laughs> but at one point, in between me Follow talking Follow Grace's about... personal Twitter. It's at Grace underscore Jessica with two A's. Hey, that was accurate. <laughs> um, for hot takes about me being gay and also a night's tale. Um, so in between me tweeting about, like, a bunch of cool jokes and whatever, um, lame stuff, I just turned to Amy and I'm like, shit, I think this might be one of my favorite movies of all time. And she's just like, yeah, I could have told you that. Because I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I, wait, for quick context, one of our OG friendship moments was <clears throat> freshman year of college, we lived on the same dorm floor, and we watched this movie together, and it was the first time that we hung out, like, one-on-one together. Yep. And we talked about how if we lived in medieval times, we would be night groupies. Basically, (laughs) the first like precursor of this podcast was this movie, freshman year of college. Yes. The other hilarious thing though with this is that we both thought we were straight then. (laughs) Well when was it freshman year? Very beginning. It would have been like September. Yeah. Both thought we were straight. We did. Lo and behold. a couple of dumbasses. But anyway, <laughs> a nice tale. Um, yeah, and like, I don't... Part of the problem is whenever someone asks you what your favorite movie is, you blink on every movie you've ever seen before. What you do is you join a sorority, and you have to answer that question way too much <laughs> because true. you have to do interviews That's with every true. single person in the sorority. So then you pick a movie to arbitrarily say is your favorite movie, and then you realize the movie that you picked is actually your favorite movie because it makes you ball your eyes out every single time you watch it. We're talking about time. Go listen to the yes, episode. Yes. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, I might have to say A Night's Tale from now on. Do because, it. like... It's also a good answer, because it's not something that everyone will have heard of or Mm -hmm. watched, but you can be like, oh, it's this early 2000s Heath Ledger movie, and then you have their attention to explain it to them. Yeah. And I think it's- It's it's not too hipster, it's not too popular. It's one of those (laughs) where, like, I always want to say, like, a movie I've seen recently, or a movie I've been thinking about recently, but, like, those are never going to be my- usually aren't going to be my favorite ones, or, like, sometimes I'll say Lord of the Rings, but, like, it has to be a very specific circumstance for me to sit down and watch Lord of the Rings, because I want to be super invested in it. Especially since we have the extended version. They're so pretty! They're not mine! And tell you, come get your DVDs! Or you know, what <laughs> um, Uh, but yeah, I think, um, going back to our old, old habit of describing how we knew all these movies, mm-hmm. um, This is one that I think's always been in my my family's always had it. I you know, my parents are huge nerds and my dad especially loves medieval stuff. Um, the idea of having a medieval sports film that's like really heartfelt and sweet, set to an rock and roll sound 80s soundtrack, like freaking iconic in my family. And so it's just always been one of those like there's nostalgia to it. There's the fact that we watched it in college, and that makes me like it more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got lady blacksmiths. It's got jousting. It's got really sweet speeches in, like, pseudo-medieval English. Jocelyn is serving fucking looks. God, she's <laughs> so iconic!
1: <laughs> Shannon like,
0: so, so Simone. are so fucking out there, but I love her looks. They're ridiculous. Um, favorite one the one that's the mesh and it's just the deep v plunge uh it's got the trope where like one character is embarrassed on the dance floor and tries to make the most of it and so their love interest comes and like dances with them until the whole group is dancing with them and if you know anything about me you know that like i love wicked and that's where the other part of that trope comes up so like how could i not how could i not like this film I might just start crying about how much I love it. It's so good, guys. Listen. <laughs> it's got good comedy. It's got good comedy. Recognizable actors, including Heath Ledger. hmm Horses. hmm Cool medieval shit. Yep. The Perfect Storm. It's The Perfect Storm. I had notes about it. <laughs> um. Well, okay, remember, because this is actually one thing I didn't remember about it, Um, which is that it has, like, the corny, trying-to-be-middle-English, even though it's not like, linguistically correct whatsoever. It has that kind <laughs> of... the girl who took Old English in college. Okay, if it was Old English, we would not be able to understand a word of it. That's true. It'd old English more, is literally a different language. It would sound more like German than it would sound like English. And if it was Middle English, we would maybe be able to understand it if we kept pausing and processing, because Middle English sounds like a really heavy... It, it's, it's just weird. Um, it is... Early modern English. Learning languages. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> nerd. Yes. Uh, but the fact that it has that corny, like, fake medieval dialogue, but it's not corny. Mm-hmm. Like, at no point does it feel super cringeworthy that they're, you know, making passionate speeches about how love should end with hope and he's not gonna flee and, like, all that shit. Like, like literally the only time that it's cheesy is when they're dictating the love letter and, like, all kind of Mm -hmm. composing it together. Yeah. And it's supposed to be this, like, over-the-top proclamation of love. Yeah. And I think it works because you see how head over heels they are, that they, one, wrote that, and then, two, that Jocelyn that is her name, right? Yeah. That Jocelyn, like, loved it, and, like, was moved by it when it is, like, so borderline cheesy. And that shows you how much they've kind of fallen for each other and kind of have this, like, schoolgirl-boy crush going. Do you like me? Check yes or no. Send tweet. Exactly! That's what it That's is! That's what it was! That's what it was. She checked yes. She kissed one. Mm. Well, her having him wear her scarf or, like, take her, yeah. like, handkerchief is the equivalent of, like, passing a note in class. Let's be real. It's very, like, crushy and cute. It is. I, I was gonna say, I feel like it's more like we're in a class ring, but or, the gender is swapped on that. Or, the other thing I can think of, because it was kind of, like, between, you know, who she was going to give the handkerchief to, if it was going to be William or the other guy, like, the Animal. bad guy. Yeah. yeah. And so, it kind of makes me think of, like, like a turncoat dance. She asked... William, to go to the dance with her, and she didn't ask the other guy, you know? That's what it is. That's what it reminds me of, too. It's very, like, schoolish because it is this, like, giddy little crush. It's courting. It is courting. And we don't get courting anymore, except for when you're an awkward high schooler. Right. There's a hot take for you. The only, like, traditional courting we have still is a bunch of awkward 15-year-olds. Yeah, because even, like, if you think of traditions that have persisted in the... There are, like upper-class people in New York who still do, like, debutante balls, but that's still high school age. Mm -hmm. Like, once you're an adult, the only thing we have left is, like, traditional weddings. Yep. That's it. Yep. (laughs) I've been thinking about it. Like, high school's where you're most likely to ask your date's parents if you can take them somewhere. Um, You have the curfews. You have... And, like, this is mostly about, like, how medieval and, like, older societies had super patriarchal views so women didn't have any rights so they're basically treated like modern day kids. But I'm in love with the lady. It gosh, has so. really, really good montages. So there's the training montage. Okay, there's yep. multiple jousting montages. Um like it just it's done really, really well in how they choose to pace things, I think. Um they also do a really good job of getting you really fucking amped about the like big events and mm-hmm. stuff. Like, the build to them, which part of that is the brilliant choice to give it modern music. Listen, there is no scene more iconic in modern cinema, in my opinion, <laughs> than the climax of the film that you are arriving back into London, most of the characters' hometown, for the first time in years, for the grand jousting tournament, and the boys are back in town starts playing. This is where my love for the boys are back in town began. Yep. Because, like, this movie... And then I spent a lot of time in an 80s bar in L.A., and then now I work somewhere that plays 80s music most of days, and it, The Boys in, Are Back in Town plays on that station a lot of days, which I don't even know if that's an 80s song but it plays on the station. Um, but, like, this movie is the origin of why that is one of my favorite throwback songs. It's so good. It's such a good, and that's such a good scene. It's such mm-hmm. a good scene. It is. Wait too fucking good. I did want the... Two things I wrote in my notes is that watching this again for the first time since freshman year of college Mm -hmm. um, and having like a more analytical view on movies, because that's who we are as people. uh, We have creative writing degrees, if you didn't know. (laughs) We read into things sometimes. Sometimes. Most of the time. On the the (laughs) Um, The two things I noticed. Mm -hmm. The class politics in this movie are actually really stunning. To they me. are. It's such an underlying message, but it's also, like, it, it, it's not hidden at all.
1: Mm. You are
0: more focused most of the time on the cool montages and the music and the action and rooting for your character, but it is such a, like, class, class privilege is all over this movie. The fact that they have to fake his, um, like, papers so that mm-hmm. he can be in the competitions because he doesn't have the royal bloodlines, um... Well, not royal, but like the bloodlines in order to be allowed to compete. The fact that everybody keeps forfeiting from the jousting matches against the prince once they realize that he's the prince. Mm -hmm. There's so many underlying elements of unfairness. And I think part of the reason it works really well is because it's shown that the prince does not like that people are forfeiting from going up against him. He's there because he wants to joust nobody wants to take the risk of hurting someone who's royal, so they are withdrawing, but he wants to joust, Like, that's why he's there. He's like, I like the sport, I want to do it. And he's trying to do it in secret. Like, he's not telling people that he's the prince. So, it's, like, shown where it, like, hurts both ways. Yeah. Which, of course, like, he still has a shit ton of money and, like, a royal guard and everything and, like, whatever. So, like, doesn't actually hurt him but they give us enough ways that we see it go both ways it doesn't feel like a weird heavy-handed like privileged thing yeah that like some people would be like feel weird about and instead i think it's just like shown overall that the way the world is running in you know these medieval times isn't the best for yeah. a lot of people um and so it doesn't come across as like a heavy-handed message and instead is just like Oh yeah, this is a kind of a classist world, huh? Yeah, and I think it's I think it's interesting that they do have those multiple class relations, like mm-hmm. William and the Prince, and William and Adamar, the evil knight, and even even stuff like William and Jocelyn, and how Jocelyn is just as oppressed by being not just she's oppressed in a different way by being a high class woman, and she's oppressed by Adamar, and she because of that she doesn't care who William is and where he comes from, and stuff like. Uh, William's father being so, like, run down by, like, his life as a working man, but being treated so well by Jocelyn and by the prince and um, Adamar's servants eventually going, because his herald eventually cheers for William instead of him. Like, there's so many different, like, and, like, the crowd loving William because he's a man of the people, even before they know who he is, but then the crowd turning on, like, it's, they do such a good job of exploring all these different avenues of how, your class defines everything in your life. Mm-hmm. For being a lighthearted sports movie, <laughs> it's pretty good. Well, let's think about, like, how many extremely heavy messages have been delivered by sports movies. Like, yeah. think I about, like, Remember the Titans. I do, okay, I say sports movie jokingly, I do absolutely adore sports movies. Yes. I really, really fucking love sports movies. Like, I'm kind of like anti-sport at this point in my life just oh, because yeah. like there's so many issues with sports culture. However, I will never fail to recognize the way that playing sports and like the fan culture of sports brings people together in a way that is almost like inexplicable to me. It's such a archaic I don't know if archaic the... It's such a deeply rooted human experience. It's teamwork and cheering and overcoming the odds. Like, all of these are, like, base human stories. It makes me think of how, like, people inherently enjoy music because there's a beat. Mm -hmm. It's like there's some primal thing in people that just recognizes that. There's something about sports like that, where there's something, like, in our DNA that says, teamwork and winning together in an arbitrary way is fucking great <laughs> it's our basic survival instincts i guess like, to like band together create yeah. a culture and community and like persevere together and you can also argue that sports films especially like big ones like remember the titans and stuff like that those are all addressing and and like Night's still all addressing bigger themes outside of the actual sport itself. So you're tying like... Sports becomes a lens through which to see so many, like, yeah. issues. So you're, you're going overcoming adversity and politics, and you could say sports are a found family trope. And oh, yeah. It, well, sports movies, guys. When I played sports, I always said that there was something really, really bonding about sweating and suffering together. Yes. Which I guess you could also then apply to how, like, people who fight and war together Mm -hmm. are, like, bonded for life. Where it's like, I feel like the girls that I won my national championship with, I haven't seen them in years. I haven't seen them since I've been a legal adult, I don't believe. But if I saw one of them in public, I'd be like holy shit, Abby, you know? <laughs> i am like, so excited to see them. Because there's something about, like, persevering and winning together in that kind of way. That's really bonding, and I don't know fully what it is. Yeah. And I think... If I, anybody is a psychologist... Yeah. <laughs> ...and wants to enlighten us... Please do. Because I, I do I do think it's that, that human instinct of, like, co- wanting to make a community and knowing that working together helps you overcome the odds, and having each person fulfill a different role, and what they're good at helps you overcome the odds. Like, it is basically, like, a very small, but still a microculture that you form with your teammates. Like, I don't know, it's fascinating to me, and I feel like I want to do more reading on this now that we've randomly brought it up on our Keith Ledger episode. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about Brokeback Mountain? Let's get into it! This was Grace's first time seeing Brokeback Mountain. It was! It was. I don't really know how it's my first time seeing Brokeback Mountain, honestly. I didn't see it until, I want to say like 2017, 2018, so I was like late to it as well. Because it was, were we still in college when you saw it? Um, yes. Yes. I believe so. Or we were freshly graduated. I, I was going to say, I feel like it was not in our apartment senior year. But you bought this in Kirksville, didn't you? No. I bought it after graduation, but I watched it illegally online the first time oh, I watched it. Oh, okay. Um, which I believe was over winter break our senior year. Okay. I, I remember I was at home on break, and I was watching it at, like, 2 a.m. in my bedroom in my bed. Which is why I cried a lot more the first time I watched it. Yeah. That'll do it. I remember you talking about watching it. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a movie. Well, okay, so... To not realize it had all of these people in it. So, 2005. We are the young. Um, I had no perception that this movie was coming out or anything. I had no fucking clue. I was way too young for that. Um, I went to school in an extremely Catholic northwest suburb. So, I never heard anybody ever really mention this movie. Like, at some point, I kind of became aware that there was, like, this movie called Brokeback Mountain that was gay. But then I didn't, it didn't enter my sphere until I was really active on Tumblr in college, and I started seeing text posts about it. Mm -hmm. Um, That was really when I became aware of it. So, I was super, super fucking late to the party when this is part of, like, the gay cinema canon, you know? Yeah. But I was, like, super fucking late to it. Um, so then I knew a lot about it from Tumblr text posts before I watched it, which granted I still didn't know, like, big plot details, but I remember one of the first things I knew about it where I was like, I really need to see this. Like, what my, like, kind of, like, what kicked me into action to actually watch it was seeing a post, which I should, this is what I meant to research before we started recording and forgot, but... I'm pretty sure I saw a post that was about Jake Gyllenhaal, like, laughing on set and saying something about, like, oh, gay cowboys, and, um, Heath Ledger, like, was super serious about it, and he was like, no, this is an important film, like, this is gonna have an impact, this means a lot to people, and gave him, like, a speech about it. And I'm pretty sure how this came up is that Jake Gyllenhaal did an interview after Heath Ledger's death and talked about him and, like, how he was as a person. Um, And he was talking about how, like, Heath Ledger had this understanding of the importance of Brokeback Mountain before they even started to see that effect occur. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the movie wasn't released yet. They were still working on it. And he was already at the point where he understood, like, the gravity of the situation. And Jake Gyllenhaal was still just, like, being a goof and whatever. And Heath Ledger was the one who was like, no, like, this is serious. Um, and I remember exactly at what point it was, if, like, they were literally filming or if it was, like, in, like, the PR part, like, afterwards, like, I don't know. But I just remember that Jake Gyllenhaal spoke about how Heath Ledger got it long before he did. Mm-hmm. And, like, Heath Ledger was the reason that Jake Gyllenhaal got it. And just... Also, just as a side note, because it literally just hit me somehow, Brokeback Mountain and Wright came out in the same year. Like, imagine, imagine! Really? imagine what a year! <laughs> being a gay young adult in oh. 2005 and just living your best life. You know, I mean, not living your best life, because it's still 2005. I was gonna say, gay men might not have yet been able to marry one another, but they They too. could in Massachusetts. They Jersey could in Massachusetts. Massachusetts gay, yeah, adult. it was Massachusetts. They could in Massachusetts. Gay men could only get married in one sedate. But, they were having a hell of a year of going to movie theaters. (laughs) God, yeah. What kind of... Really. Which I can't believe, like, that's not... I feel like that should just be a common knowledge thing. I feel like everyone should know that. Oh my god. But, yeah, the Rent movie came out the same year as this. Um, But, yeah. Yeah. And it feels absurd knowing... 2005 was not that long ago. Like, I remember stuff that happened in 2005. Like... Yeah. And we're young. We, we youngins. We youngins. Um, Let's see, in 2005, I was 10. Like, it is... Relatively speaking, it is so recent that this came out. Like, I remember, like, when we were probably first talking about doing this episode a few months ago, I was like, wait, that came out in the 2000s? Because, like, it feels like for being one of the first major steps in LGBT cinema, like, that's not that long ago. Yeah, it really isn't. They're so right. Which is sad, also kind of, like, exciting in the fact that, like, look where we are from. Brokeback Mountain, where they barely even say- do they even say the word gay? Do they even say the word homosexual? They are, I'm not sure if they, do. they are star-crossed lovers, one of whom dies, both of whom end up pretty miserable. Going from that to Love, Simon in less than 15 years? But you also can look at that and say it took a fucking decade to it get something like as light-hearted yeah. as Love, Simon. And that is true! <laughs> well, that you can look at it both ways. You can look at it both ways. And I definitely am looking at it both ways because, because. it's so... But yeah. What's so like deeply upsetting to me about Brokeback Mountain, and deeply upsetting in that way where, like, I love a movie that moves me, um, is that it's so heavily insinuated that because Jack grew up with parents who it seems like they probably never spoke about it, but they knew their son was gay. Mm -hmm. And they decided that I think it was one of those things where, like, they just weren't going to talk about it and kind of pretend they didn't know, even though everybody, like, all, of, like, those three parties, Mom, Dad, Jack, they all knew they knew. Right. Like, that seems to be the consensus. And so because Jack grew up in a home where things weren't good by today's standards, but they were damn good for that, for what, Idaho? Where are they? Uh, Wyoming. Wyoming. No, Montana? Montana? Wyoming. Sorry, I'm stuck on The Last of Us Part 2, which starts in Wyoming. Montana is where they are. Okay. Is, I think. So, for the fact that they're in Montana in the 70s, that's... Well, and, like, 50s, when Jack would have been growing up. Right. That's absolutely stellar. That they weren't just going to, like, kick him out, or, like, Something when he sent was him a kid. to an asylum, right? Yeah, like there's so many horrendous things that could have come from them recognizing that their son was gay, and instead they decided on a like s- kind of silent acceptance policy. And the fact then that it's like because he doesn't have the ingrained fear that Ennis does about yeah. being found out is how then he ends up dead, and Ennis ends up alone and sad, like. Oh my god, that hurts so much. We're like, Ennis is aware of the ramifications, and so he never gets to be happy, and Jack tries to be happy, and he doesn't get to live. Yeah. Like, motherfucking fuck. What got me was that, I mean, obviously, Jack was killed. Jack was killed. We know this. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the movie never says Jack was killed, it just says Jack died, and shows us Ennis assuming he was killed, that's what got me. Like, I knew, I knew going into this one of them died. I figured it was Jack. I figured after the scene where Ennis is describing, like, the guy that he saw as a kid, I figured he was going to be murdered for being gay. Love expectations that we have in today's society. (sighs) But I, I think it's it's such a small thing. But I think it's it, that detail really shook me. That it's not just the fact that it happened; it's the fact that Ennis has been waiting for it to happen since they met, mm-hmm. and like his worst fears have been confirmed. And we don't even get like the closure of knowing for sure that his worst fears were accurate. Mm-hmm. I also love the the way that this movie tells the story like how an indie film would, Mm -hmm. how much is left unsaid, how much is open for us to make the connections. Because there's only one connection to make in a lot of situations, they just don't completely outline it for us. I love the absolute fucking gut punch that that phone call is. Where you're watching Anne Hathaway clinically explain. Yeah. Like... fake story they made up so she doesn't have to tell people that her husband was gay and then when they cut to the hate crime it's such a gut punch cause like you're still reeling over the fact that the fucking like postcard had deceased on it just like Ennis is you're still reeling from that and then for them to be like they throw the details at you fast enough you don't have time to breathe Mm -hmm. like the pacing is really really good where as it's settling into your mind that Anne Hathaway's being weirdly calm on the phone call and, like, talking really monotone, like, as that seeps in and, like, starts to sink into your mind, they just cut to the hate crime. Yep. Yeah, because I remember I was still processing deceased, partly because, like, mm-hmm. I've never had, like, seen a piece of mail that just says deceased on it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what General Post was when we watched this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I only learned what General Post was because I just kind of put some context together in this Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. Um, it's not a thing anymore. <laughs> so I was still reeling from, like, deceased, and then, like, next thing I know, they're showing that, and I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. Like, mm-hmm. fuck. And the fact that it's completely silent, there's mm-hmm. no sound okay, effects. During that's that scene. one of my favorite sound design things of all time, is either making something like. Th- not having sound over something. That is my one of my favorite sound design techniques of all time. It's so yet. It's so good. To reference a previous episode, it reminds me of um, in Avatar, Azula and Zuko's Agni Kai, yeah. where they play the orchestra music and they mute all, not mute, but they, like, um, take down the volume of all of the bending during mm-hmm. the fight, so that you're focused on the sad music much more than anything else. It's like in this scene, taking out the sound effects like, keeps you from being, like, disgusted by the violence, because you can't hear any of the noises, and that's right. what really gets the people. Like, I remember when I saw Daredevil, when I watched the first season of Daredevil, there were certain scenes I had to mute because there was too many, like, violent noises. Um, so it's like they took away that element that makes people feel squeamish. So you're not going to look away, and you're going to witness what happened mm-hmm. to Jack. And I think it's it's weirdly one of the best ways to put you in the mindset of whatever character you're watching because like the silence of Ennis, like yeah. of his mind just being blank over like holy shit he's dead, holy shit he's dead, holy shit he's dead. Yeah, and like, that's what happens. It communicates. Like, it. It's it's t- it's the auditory version of tunnel vision. Yes, like your blood is rushing in your ears, you can't hear anything. I'm gonna imagine if the only noise during that was, like, blood in the ears, like, that well, kind of noise. Well, because that's what I think of when, like, the Agni Kai, because you have the sad music, um, in Avatar, but you have the sad music, but then you also have the rushing of the fire, so, like, you can't hear them moving, or, like, all of the normal sound effects that go with bending scenes, you can just hear, like, the rush of flames, and like like stuff like they do this in the Hunger Games, but so many action movies do that, where like an explosion happens and you just hear the ringing in your ears. Like this have is my seen, favorite part of sound design, guys. Have you seen that list on IMDb where it's like movies where a bomb goes off and then there's a screeching noise to tell us that the protagonist can briefly not hear? I have. <laughs> like, there's a entire IMDb. That list. that list is valid. It is, but that's all I can think of now. But yeah, and I think I think the absence of sound can also do that in. A trauma that is purely emotional mm-hmm. yes it's so good trauma I okay so going into this you you hadn't realized until I said it that the classic Tumblr post where you see, like, Jack standing with the mountains behind him, yeah. and it says, this is a goddamn bitch of an unsatisfactory situation. You didn't know that was Brokeback Mountain, right? No, nope. Up until I said it was, like, when we talked about watching this. Yes, that is correct. Because it sounds like it's going to be a line out of a comedy, which is why people put it everywhere. Because yeah! It's- funny when you take it out of the context it sounds like a 2005 cowboy cowboy comedy right like like it's hilarious but like in the scene it's not funny but when you actually stop and think about that line and take it out of the context of them having like a lover's dispute it's so fucking funny I think it actually works, and I don't know if this is, like, originally planned, or if it's just because it is kind of a meme now, but I think it works as a good tension break for that scene, Mm -hmm. because that is a long fight that they have, and it it rises and falls so many times. Well, it's all of the things that they've never talked about over the years, because they've been trying to savor the moments they do get together, so they don't want to have fights and tension every time they see one another, but we see them slowly get to the point where they have a lot of conflict because they are living a hard, separate life from one another, and they're under an incredible amount of strain given their situation. So, of course, it gets to that point, but I think, too, that scene does a really good job of showing how not talking about it has made it build up and build up and build up. And they have so many frustrations they've never gotten out. Well, and for such a quiet movie, and a movie with, like, relatively... Very little dialogue, yes. like having that. Well, and this doesn't talk. And this doesn't talk, and having that long of a fight scene and going through so many issues right there and coming out with it without any resolution whatsoever. Like, I think whether intentionally or not, that line works as a really good tension break because you just get and and part of it is Jack is taking a breath and just talking to himself for a second, just being like, reset. Okay, now we can go back to it. Like, it's really interesting, and I kind of want to know if that was intentional with that line. I mean, I it does feel slightly out of place, but I generally don't know if that's just the context we have for it now. My guess would be that they understood in crafting the dialogue for that scene that they had to give something be a mental break for us to process everything they're arguing about, but they couldn't let there just be silence. They had to continue mm-hmm. fighting. So they had to put in certain lines that were somewhat of throwaways. Not as in, like, they don't matter, but that in they don't add more conflict right. to the fight. There has to be sentences within the fight that you can not pay attention to if you're still paying attention to the previous sentence and processing it. Um, kind of like the same thing as, like, you know how with The Last of Us, they said they had to put in the credits where they did because people yep. were still reeling from the death? Like, you have to give people processing time. Can you tell that we're recording this uh, a couple weeks before The Last of Us Part 2 comes out? Mm-hmm. Honestly, though, that, like, learning that that's why they put the credits where they were was a really big, like, I took note of that as a writer, I Mm -hmm. think, because I would never thought about that, like, the breathing room that you have to give people. I always had thought of it in a way where, like, don't put two really intense scenes directly back to back, or, like, if you just had a big action sequence, let there be room for people to breathe after it. But i never thought of it in a, like, people literally won't be able to pay attention because they're still so distracted by what they last saw away. Like, i would never realized that people would focus to that extent. Because it's hard to recognize that when you yourself are writing, because you know what you're doing. Yeah. You can't always see from the audience's perspective. Um, so I feel like when I learned that about The Last of Us, it was something I really took note of, like, for myself. And that's... Not- I'm trying to decide if I want to, like, talk about this, because it's just going to lead to a Last of Us tangent. <laughs> or if I should, like, try and spiral back into... Hmm. Let's just go back to Brokeback Mountain. back Mountain. Broke back back. Um, God, I love the Last of Us. Anyway. Um, I think that's also really interesting, because, like you said, during that fight scene, they couldn't just have silence be your processing time, because this is a movie that turned silence into something so heavy and so charged. So it's like, they had, they created the added challenge and the added depth of like, you're going to read into every single silence because Ennis doesn't talk, and because silence is tension, and because silence is being closeted, and silence is wondering if people know, and... Like, that's so fascinating to me that they... So then Jack, the one who actually talks more, to the extent that he talked without saying he was gay, but that's how he told his parents he was gay, was by talking about men he was going to come fix up their home with. And so, like, to have Jack be the one who's just continually talking in that situation and delivering the lines that are our, our mental break, it's, like, it's done so well. The way that they, like, put so much characterization into... Ex- like, like obviously you always do characterization with how you make your characters act. So saying that sentence sounds stupid as fuck right now, but just these characters are so well done. Like I inherently understand how each of them is choosing to function in the given situation. Like I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And and that scene really exemplifies it because it has. Jack doing all the talking. Jack doing all of the emotional labor and putting all of the, like, hard effort in to try to make it work. And, and, and Jack's the one who, like, initiates things before, yeah. between them, like, every in time. the first place and every time. And, and, and it's not only not talking, but, like, actively retreating, putting off talking, trying to avoid it at all costs. Like, he put off, you know, kissing Jack in the first place and, like... It's it's a really good way, like, you could break the entire relationship down to that one fight scene, which is what a lot of romantic stories do anyway, that you can put the entire, the bare essentials of your characters and their relationship into the big fight scene, but they do it so well in this, and mm-hmm. they don't give them a resolution, which is different than a lot of romance movies, yeah. because it's gay. But, it's still an added writing challenge. Mm-hmm. But they almost do. Obviously, they don't get a classic resolution. Obviously. obviously, but they do get a bit of resolution in when Ennis goes to Jack's home. The fact That's that true. his parents knew who he was when he showed up, they inherently understood Ennis was in love with Jack, and that Jack loved Ennis. Um, the act of like him taking the shirt and the mm-hmm. mom giving him the bag and everything, like. And asking him to come back, too. That's what got me more than the bag, was that she was like, come back and visit us, and I'm like, shit. Right, like the subtle acceptance in that, and, like, that is their... Like, obviously they don't get to be together, but that's the most they're gonna be together, is the fact that Ennis has been accepted by Jack's family. Um, and, oh, it's just so good, so funny. I think, also, uh, the fact that Ennis goes and lives by himself, is a resolution in his part. Like, he's done he trying to up, make his marriage work, yes. and gave up trying to make just dating work, and has just accepted. And it's not a happy resolution, but it is it his form be of It shouldn't the closure. Case. Yeah. It's like he removed himself from trying to fit into society in the way that was expected of him. Yeah. And that, in and of itself, is a huge art for Ennis as somebody who was, like, basically, like, scare tactic into like assimilating into heterosexuality. He was literally scared straight. Yes, he was scared straight. And he finally let go of the fear, which part of that was he didn't actively have a gay lover anymore, mm-hmm. um, which makes it a little easier to hide when you're not actively ew, ro- being romantic ew. with someone. But um, it is him finally saying, no, I will not be what society wants me to be, I get to be myself. Yeah. And I think combining that with the fact that his daughter's still visiting him and he finally decides to put his family first of his own choice by going to her wedding instead of working that Mm -hmm. day, like... Well, and I think that's symbolic of him realizing that he has to make choices that make him happy while he can, he missed out on getting to be with Jack. We understand he regrets that, especially after he goes to see Jack's parents and understands that they possibly could have had a life, like, taking care of the parents' farm. That, like, that could have been a possibility for them, but he assumed he couldn't, because he never imagined, I think, that there were parents like Jack's. Right. And so I think then us seeing that he's going to set aside work for his daughter's wedding, is showing us that he's finally making choices for himself. And not doing, you know, what's expected of him. Yeah. Or what's demanded of him by society, such as work under capitalism. Ew, ew. And, and we then... just turned the game movie into a capitalistic rant, too. God. I... Fuck society. And also, also, the fact that immediately after doing that, he goes to Jack's shirt... And is talking to Jack, basically. So, like, knowing that not only is he making those decisions, he's making them with Jack in mind. Both regretting that he didn't make them with Jack, and also, like, taking that influence to improve his life. Like, taking the lessons you've learned from someone you've lost. That is also a wicked reference. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah. Quickly going back to our discussion about... Like, how good they are at, like, Ennis being silent and Jack being talkative. Um, The scene where Ennis is sitting up on the hill, but they're leaving Brokeback Mountain that day and taking the sheep back down, and Jack goes and lassos him. Like, that's gift all over Tumblr because it's, like, cute and shit. But also, I just realized he literally lassos Ennis and, like, pulls him in.
1: But oh it's like, no. Ennis isn't going to
0: reach out on his own. Jack's the one who initiates everything, and, like, it's like, he has to reach out for Ennis. Ennis isn't going to, like, come in on his own to anything, because he's so reserved. And I'm like, the symbology! The creative writing major in me loves it so much. It's so good. I want to write a paper about the symbolism in this movie right now! And this is why I miss the academic advisor so much. You could just write a paper. I published. I could. That. I mean, I made that vlog like, oh my god, my sophomore year of college, I think, that was me writing mini essays about movies when I couldn't write about them for class. And I only put like three things on there ever, but like, hey, I could go back to it and start you writing can about go back to it. Men. I think that would sore right now. I just, I love symbolism so fucking so good. much. It's Listen. So good. All of you people sitting there being like, the curtains aren't blue in the Great Gatsby for a reason. The author just wanted them to be blue. I am telling you right now, the author didn't just want them to be blue. They picked the color for a reason. Okay, you say that? Sometimes the curtains are just blue. However, the green light thing? Fucking fascinating. Find Mm -hmm. the symbols that are really, really cool and obsess over those and... You know, if the curtains are just blue, that that's fine. Sometimes the curtains are just blue, but sometimes the character's favorite color is blue, and the author did decide that for a reason, and that's why the drapes are blue. Symbolism. Because also, I don't know if you've experienced this with writing, but sometimes you don't even realize that you just made some symbolism, and then you go back and you, like, proofread or something, and you're like, wait, shit. Yeah. I put symbolism in that. I do that. Or, like, foreshadowing or something, and I look back right. and I'm like, oh, Just we because we know where we're going with the writing, like, we know what the end game is. Of, so, while we're writing, we will accidentally put more into it than we're even consciously doing. And that doesn't mean it's not there, just mm-hmm. because we didn't consciously do it at the time. Because, like, you know your characters. So maybe you didn't consciously orchestrate the scene a specific way, but when you go back, you're like, well, I knew my character well enough that I automatically and naturally wrote them that way without having to consciously plan out to write it that way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because if you know your characters and you know the story you want to tell well enough, it's just going to come out. Because even, even, this you know, I'm surprised I haven't brought it up sooner. is a thing in Critical Role, which... (laughs) by the nature of d d has to be improv not written, and they don't, like, every player knows their own character, but they don't know the other characters, they don't know the story how and how it's going to end up, but you look back and there's so many, like, parallels and foreshadowing and symbolism, and some of it is just, like, dumb chance, but I do genuinely think that some of it is just, you know, they're so invested in their characters that, like... Whether subconsciously or not, they can pick up on things that mm-hmm. might happen, possibilities that they might pursue, and possibilities that their friends around the table might pursue. And it just, I, I almost like those better, that mm-hmm. it's kind of like, it, the naturally it's so natural, yeah, yeah. It's so authentic that, like, you won't even consciously force it in there, it just comes out with the story. Mm-hmm. Fucking Lassos, man. Lassos. I love that scene the more I think so playful and they don't get a lot of playful scenes they are very very aggressive people they have two playful scenes that i can think of because there's the lasso scene and then there's when the guy who hired them sees them through the binoculars tussling that's it and part of that's like really like of course those are their only playful scenes those are the only times they're up on the mountain together in their like honeymoon phase and also completely free of society you know um Another thing is, like, because I remember, like, in the middle of watching this, after their third, like, I wasn't sure if they were going to hit each other or start making out, I was just kind of like, admittedly a lot of this is because lesbian cowboys. However, how different would this movie be if it was two women instead of two men? Like, there is such a streak of aggression and toxic masculinity in this. Right, the fact that they do, like, draw blood from one another yeah. when, um, who, I think Jack punches Ennis first, and then Ennis hits him back. Yeah. And that's how he gets the blood on the shirt that Jack keeps. Um. They are so aggressive. Like, they don't even kiss before they start fucking. Yeah. They just... Yeah. They're so aggressive with each other. And, and Ennis, Ennis is just, like, the pinnacle of toxic masculinity because mm. of how he was raised, and who he is, and that shows up not just to Jack, but in many people throughout his life. Um, But it's such an interesting take, because it's not a take that we see in gay media very much anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, so look at the other period piece about gay people that is with it. Carol. It's so much, like, softer. Yeah. And all that, like... They have a secret romance going. They can't let society you know, like, all of these things. But, and part of that, too, is, like, a classist element. Yes. Because in Carol, they're, like, in society, and this is, like, they're out on a mountain. And I will say that Carol... It's been forever since I saw the movie, and I did not finish the book. Um, and there's a scene where they definitely pull a gun on someone. Um, and I think Carol herself is very hardened, but she is... But Carol is always super soft with Therese. I really hope that's right now. Uh, but yeah, yeah, for being, cause that's a how is this saying? It's in the same, some fifties. Yeah, nineteen fifties New York, and that's another thing. It's urban versus rural, which of course you know the West is more conservative than like the East Coast is yeah. going to be. West is more conservative. West is more untamed, (laughs) quote-unquote, masculine, (laughs) quote-unquote. And then at some point, California was like... That's really interesting, setting those side-by-side. Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, cowboys, wilderness, Mm -hmm. you know, those sorts of things, being out west, but I don't think that it's completely ridiculous to read a gender aspect into it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which, part of me really likes that, because, like, they're not soft people they are farmers and ranchers and cowboys and you know bull riders and like they are the classic hardened western man Mm -hmm. and they're gay like it's a extremely masculine setting to put them in which i only can imagine is a purposeful choice and this was based on a short story which i do want to Uh, But I'd love to do some research about the author and if they did interviews talking about their artistic choices. Keith Ledger. Man. He seems like a stellar guy. So many iconic roles. Literal angel hair (laughs) that's coming from the lesbian of the group. Imagine, like, what else his filmography would have ended up with. Yeah. I only can imagine that he would have gone on to... Like, be a little bit of, like, a Leonardo DiCaprio, where, like, he just kept being in, like, movies that I were expected to win awards again and again Mm -hmm. and again. Like, I feel like that's how he would have become, where, like, you see that he's going to be in a movie, and you're like, ah, Oscar contender. I could see him, and this feels weird saying, because it's not like it would have been, it's not like it's an obligation for anyone in the spotlight. But I could have seen him becoming one of the best advocates for, you know, political oppression, like, fighting political oppression, mental health issues. Like, he could have, I could see him definitely being, like, like, up there with, like, Carrie Fisher on Twitter and how she was and stuff like that. Like, that Mm -hmm. kind of iconic. I I want to imagine that he would have tweeted about the Me Too movement. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He would have been doing, like, cast reunions last year with uh, the cast of 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm -hmm. But he did amazing work, and that amazing work spreads far beyond his role as the Joker. And on that note, this is the end of the episode. If you want to hear more from us, you can always follow us on Twitter at BFAFpod. You can also follow our personal Twitters. I am grace underscore Jessica, and that is Jessica with two A's. And mine is at hey it's Amy J. It's hey it's underscore A M Y J A Y. I love when you get it right. <laughs> and uh, I actually remember my own yeah. Twitter handle. You can also check out our Instagram or our TikTok, both are BFAF pod. Um, I would say Tumblr, but we know that we're not going to get that up in the next, I don't know how long, five minutes before we post <laughs> this yep uh, eventually. Someday there will be a Tumblr. just someday. Keep looking for BFAF Pod on Tumblr and maybe you'll find something someday. <laughs> you can find us at BFAF a, a pod on all social medias. Yes. <laughs> all of them. LinkedIn, Facebook, no MySpace. <laughs> no. <gasps> oh Live Journal. And on that note. <laughs> good night, y'all. <laughs> good night, y'all. Have a yes good evening. Go vote. Go vote.